This is episode 69 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Sonia Mulfenter. She is a clinically trained speech-language pathologist whose research specializes in understanding the physiological features of both normal swallowing and disordered swallowing. Her overarching research goal is to provide clinically relevant research to inform frontline clinical practice. Her current focus is on naturally occurring muscle loss in the pharynx as the result of aging and the impact of this loss on swallowing function. And also be sure to check out her lab's Facebook page at NYU Swallowing Research Lab. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This is our final episode of 2018. I'm going to take a two-week hiatus after this for Christmas and New Year's because I think everybody deserves some time off over the holidays. So um, whether you celebrate Christmas, whether you celebrate Hanukkah, whether you celebrate Kwanzaa, whatever you celebrate, please have a safe, happy, healthy, peaceful holiday season. I'm super grateful for everybody that's listened and has helped us now cross 600,000 downloads with this podcast. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Know that I'm so eternally grateful to everybody that's tuned in and all of our guests that have uh, donated their wonderful time and knowledge to this cause. Just two quick announcements. Um, If you've literally waited till the last week of 2018 to get your CEUs, don't forget that MedBridge still has their uh, free upgrade to the premium plan, medbridgeeducation.com forward slash SYP. I'm an affiliate for that, so a small portion of that goes back into this podcast. Uh, You can also use promo code SYP, get access to all those unlimited CEUs for only $95 for one full calendar year. Second announcement I am opening the Medical SLP Collective. That is my brand new membership site uh, that includes everything of the former Medical SLP Solutions site that I used to be a part of, includes all that content and more. We have lots of live patient video demonstrations now. We have over 30 contributors, um, our university professors at Blind Peer Review, all the information. We will be reopening that site to everybody Uh, in January. So please stay tuned for that. Um, Listen to the next episode when we come back on the air in January. I'll tell you how to get all signed up for that. Uh, And without further ado, I hope you love, love, love this episode with Dr. Sonia Mulfenter. She's just a blast. I could talk to her for hours and hours. And again, I hope you all have a safe and happy and healthy holiday season. Hello, everybody. We are live from the ASHA convention today, actually. So if you hear background noise, yelling, an elevator dinging, don't mind that. (laughs) But we are here at the ASHA convention. I'm here today with Dr. Sonia Mulfenter, and I am so excited to have this conversation with her because I think this is stuff that is all near and dear to our heart that we're finally learning some actual real hard data about. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. This is really exciting. Um, We're tucked away in a little nook uh, in the convention center in Boston, and and, you know, this is is the right time to talk about this because here we are with all these clinicians in one place doing continuing ed, so thanks for having me. Yes. So what paper specifically are we going to, or what topic are we going to run with? Yeah, so today we're going to talk about some research that I've been doing, a, a line of research focused on the concept of sarcopenia in the pharynx. 
And the, the specific paper that, that probably focuses on this the most is a paper that came out this year in the dysphagia journal. The title is Volumetric Changes to the Pharynx in Healthy Aging, Consequences for Pharyngeal Swallowing Mechanics and Function. There's a related article that came out in JSLHR around the same time. And so this is a series of work that has been funded by the NIH for an R21 grant. Awesome. It's now wrapping up and I'm working on the next phase. So, so I'm really excited to be talking about it and getting the word out there. Yeah. Yeah. So well, I think what's so interesting is, you know, and I say this to my patients sometimes, sometimes it's difficult to find the actual cause of the dysphagia. And mm-hmm. sometimes I really, I just say, just kind of like your arms and your legs get weak, your swallowing yeah. muscles can get weak yeah. as you get older. Yeah. And it's true. I mean, we, what's really challenging, and I, I think your audience probably knows this, we know that swallowing changes with aging. We, we've heard the word presbyphagia, that swallowing changes are natural and they're not necessarily disordered. And what the literature really needs desperately is some cutoff values that tell us when we should be worried. And I'm going to let the cat out of the bag that that's, I'm not answering that question yet, but this sort of established something that I'm sure a lot of you have thought about and have observed. And I don't want to sound like I'm a pioneer here. This builds on work done by others. You know, the concept of sarcopenia applied to swallowing muscles was probably heavily influenced by Joanne Robbins' work in the tongue. I know that Rebecca Leonard's lab also did work looking at pharyngeal wall thickness in aging, so that's really influenced the direction this work has taken. But before I did this prospective study, we did a study to confirm what I just mentioned, that the pharyngeal muscles are undergoing atrophy. So let me back up. Sarcopenia, if you don't know that word, is the natural loss of muscle mass and function in aging. And so, like you said, our biceps and our quads are... We know that that's happening, right? We look at our, our parents and our grandparents and we think, wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's where I'm going. And, yeah. and I've recently read somewhere in a f- exercise science physiology that 35 is the beginning of the end. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. I'm screwed. Yeah. So sarcopenia is, is okay. I don't know if that applies to swallowing, <laughs> so I want to say that. Okay. I have not established that for swallowing. But there was some indication that that's when muscular changes are moving in the wrong direction as okay. a result of healthy, natural aging. Wow. And so... You know, we did a study where we looked at the pharyngeal lumen volume on MRI. So basically how cavernous is that space in healthy young women, middle-aged women, and older women. And we saw this dramatic effect of larger volume, even when you control for factors like how tall someone is. And so that was sort of proof of concept in a retrospective way. And this data that I have in these papers talking about today were prospectively collected. So we had 44 healthy older adults who volunteered to participate that our colleagues are seeing in the community. And they were all 65 or older, and they did a standardized video fluoroscopic protocol where they swallowed various boluses, three repeated trials per condition, 5 ml thin, 20 ml thin, and 5 ml nectar. And then we measured how big their pharynx was. And I'll pause there because it's a bit of a novel measure that a lot of people haven't heard of. But I'm just going to finish the thought to say that, you know, our goal was to look at how the biomechanics and function of swallowing, so we're talking about kinematics and timing, and and when I say function, I'm talking about post-swallow residue. These aren't aspirators. They're healthy. And 
how those things are related to the degree of pharyngeal sarcopenia. So the relationship between muscle loss in the pharynx in very healthy individuals and their performance in swallowing. All right. So I think I'll pause and tell you about how we measured this. Sounds good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's fun, but it's not something you're going to hear about at ASHA. Yeah, cool. <laughs> so there's this device called acoustic pharyngometry, or you'll also find in the literature called acoustic reflection technology. Okay. It's like echolocation. So like how a bat navigates through space, it projects sound waves, they're reflected back, and it gives an uh, impression of space, or how sonar or dolphins okay. navigate. Okay. So essentially, you can use this device, which comes from the dentistry world interestingly enough, to have the patients breathe through the device. So it's not a swallowing measure. It's at rest during breathing tasks. Um, and you do a series of tasks to landmark different parts of the pharynx. And then there's a bit of post-processing involved. It's not user-friendly. Yeah. It's a research tool. Okay. And in the end, we get a measure of volume between the velum and the glottis. Okay. So how many millimeters, milliliters, because volume or, or cubic centimeters of space exist. And this has been applied a little bit in speech science literature. So it's not the first speech pathology publication to look at this by any stretch. So when we get these measures, we can then include them in a statistical analysis to say, does how big or how cavernous this space is influence the biomechanics of swallowing and the function of swallowing? The leap of faith here is that volume, larger volume, means pharyngeal muscle loss. Okay, so we didn't, okay. We didn't okay. measure the muscles. Right. We said there's more airspace. So okay. if you think about, and this is where I wish I wasn't on a podcast so you could look at my hands, yeah. but I think of like <laughs> when someone has nice thick bulk muscles, you can imagine that the lumen of the pharynx is smaller. Yep. And just like your biceps thin out, if the pharyngeal muscles are thinning out, then that airspace is going to get bigger. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Sense. Yep. So, but this is a caveat and a limitation. We're not actually measuring pharyngeal sarcopenia. We're measuring volume of the airway. Okay. okay. And and making the connection that 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 will be the representation. That MRI study that I mentioned earlier, we also measured we measured that volume and we using MRI and we measured thickness of the pharyngeal muscles and they were highly correlated. So, I think it's cool. a, a reasonable assumption, but it's not. I want to be clear that we're not actually measuring sarcopenia. Okay. Okay. And thank you for explaining all that, because I think sometimes, you know, I, I love talking to researchers, and I love hearing your science brain, but sometimes mm -hmm. for clinicians, it's hard to be like, where did you come right. up with that? Right. So. Actually, you know what's fun? I'll tell you a little bit more about the device and what it does normally, why, why it's a dentistry tool, because it might help people visualize what this tool does. So it's used by dentists who make mouthpieces for people with sleep apnea. Okay. So... If you have sleep apnea, you have this pharyngeal compliance, the pharyngeal walls collapse on each other, this is obstructive sleep apnea, and when they sleep, they have these awful debilitating events, right, of the pharynx collapsing. So the dentist can actually make a mouthpiece that changes the position of the jaw relative to the pharynx, so the pharynx is more open. And so people sleep with these dental devices in hopes of improving their airway, specifically in the pharynx. And so dentists use this device, this acoustic pharyngometry or acoustic reflection technology, to compare the pharyngeal size with and without the devices that they make for people. Okay. And when I bought this device for my lab, I, I funnily enough, am listed on all sorts of 
commercial email lists for dentists. Now awesome. I get invited to dental <laughs> meetings and, and I keep writing them back. I'm not yeah, a dentist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But so that, that's kind of a neat application or a borrowing. Um, and it's been um, studied a lot in, in that literature for validation. But the, bringing it to the swallowing research has been fun. Maybe at the end we can talk about what I think about its uptake for clinicians because Again, I'll let the cat out of the bag. I don't think we're there at all. Yeah. I'm not sh- I'm not sure that it's going to be the best way to, to move forward, but I think it's been really informative for the theoretical yeah, ground absolutely. here. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, we had a lot of fun collecting the data and meeting all these seniors and, yeah. and healthy seniors in the city. And, and I should say this was done. I met NYU Steinhardt, which is not housed in a medical school. I don't have access to a video fluoroscopy suite. Okay you know, on my day-to-day. And so the senior author on this paper is Kathy Lazarus. She was at Mount Sinai Beth Israel, just up the road from us, and was hugely instrumental and a great mentor in getting me set up in New York. And she did all these studies with us. So that was really fun. Oh, good. And and our other author is uh, Charlie Linnell, and he's a doctoral student in our department. He did a lot of the measurement on this project. These healthy seniors, these participants, went to see Dr. Lazarus at Mount Sinai Beth Israel for their fluoro. I did the acoustic pharyngometry. They were done back-to-back in the fluoro suite, but not simultaneously because I said that it's a breathing task, not a swallowing task. So there's no way to do these at the same time. And then we did a lot of measurement. We measured, specifically looked at biomechanical functions of pharyngeal muscles. So we were interested in pharyngeal shortening and pharyngeal constriction, as well as the functional outcome of those, which in the way I was trained to think that's residue, right? So if you're gonna have pharyngeal atrophy, what do you expect to change and what's the consequence? Atrophy of the pharyngeal muscles might affect constriction and shortening, and if we see that, we might see residue. We do have PAS scores on all these patients. We have lots of other measures on these, I said patients, I mean participants. And so, essentially, we, we ran statistical tests to, to look at those relationships. And, and we did find that pharyngeal lumen volume was associated with worse pharyngeal constriction. So the bigger the pharynx was, the worse the constriction was. And that's not a hard connection to yeah. make, right? We, yeah. you know, but hadn't really been said. And we saw associated worse residue. Uh, what we didn't see was an effect of pharyngeal shortening. So we didn't see a relationship between worse pharyngeal atrophy or sarcopenia and worse pharyngeal shortening. Okay. Uh, that's sort of the main finding. There are also little findings because we looked at bolus condition, stuff like that, but that's kind of the take-home, okay. that there's this relationship between pharyngeal volume and pharyngeal constriction as well as post-volume residue. So let me, let me ask you, so, that, so this is just a one-time thing? Yeah. Do you have any plans or are there more? Because I think of like following them in like a longitudinal type study. Yeah. yeah. That's a really great question. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm frantically writing a grant to extend this research, but I'd, I'd actually like to see what we can do about this yeah. atrophy. Yeah. So more taking a, a treatment look. I don't know how long a longitudinal study would need to be. And, and part of, if I did that, I don't know if acoustic pharyngometry is going to be sensitive enough to pick that up. Gotcha. If this volumetric airspace, you know, I think we might want to turn to animal models to look at how the, the muscular presentation changes over time, if we were going to do that yeah, in another way. Yeah. But 
but there's some collaborative research going on now that, that you know, when it comes out, you'll see we're looking at some populations and, and compare. So now we know what healthy older people's pharynxes are doing. Yeah. And so to be clear, these are all functional swallowers. When I say they had more residue, they had more residue using an NRS continuous scale that's sensitive. They probably all would have scored zeros and ones on the component 16 of MBSIMP, which we're taught to think of as normal. Yeah. But the point is there's a relationship between the constriction and the residue that can be linked to, uh, we can't say it's causative in this model, but that is appears to be related to the volume of the pharynx. All right. But yeah, I'd love to, to study uh, longitudinally. And we were joking in my lab that we should start taking yearly measures of everyone. Yeah, um, I know. Just, you know. I know. Because I guess I'm at the age now that it's all downhill right, from it, here. It's so to be going downhill. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I'm not convinced that that this measure is sensitive enough. Gotcha. But, you know, if you had a series of fluoros, one per year for ten years, it'd be really interesting. I mean, I think we would know so much more about presbyphagia with a study like that. Now, that's just not something that's going to be funded right, right now. Right. Well, maybe it would, would be, but I don't know if I'm clever enough to write yeah. that grant. <laughs> because then we would be able to find, you know, the hard, I guess, hard cutoff of right. when you're now. Right, right. And I guess the there's a notion that I think clinicians are comfortable with and researchers would like to understand more about the idea that we, even if we're having these changes and they're not expressing yet in a pathological way, that it might be beneficial to build up functional reserve. So if someone is weak but managing, is it beneficial to make them stronger so that you stave off the effects of that tipping point? Or that if that person then had a stroke, do they do they do better because they have uh, built up this reserve? So we don't know about sarcopenia and its tipping points into disorder versus natural changes. We also don't know if we can protect people against it. I've been reading a little bit of the exercise physiology literature, and it seems to be the case that resistance exercises, not endurance exercises, for the limbs do protect people. So, okay. so you can stave off the effects of sarcopenia with resistance training. And the challenge here is, what's a resistance exercise in swallowing? Right. So, more questions and answers, yes. as per usual. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, tell us what you ended up finding. Right. So, we, we found that the worse the volume was, the worse the outcomes were in normal people. So, there's a relationship. Worse constriction, worse residue in the biggest pharynxes. It's really the, the main finding, it, and it's quite simple. So it seems that it's actually molecular residue that's prone to these changes, so the worse the pharyngeal volume was, the larger pharyngeal volume, resulted in increasing molecular residue using the NRS, the Normalized Residue Ratio Scale. Okay. And we actually could do an analysis looking at how much it got worse, and so in the paper you can see, I mean, it's a bunch of numbers, it's not really worth reading out, but you can see for every cubic centimeter increase, you can expect this much more residue. And the same for pharyngeal constriction. For every unit, um, we had an associated worsening. But again, there wasn't an effect of shortening. So 
also kind of intuitive, right? So you have the, the size of the lumen, the pharyngeal lumen, it's probably more influenced by those big wrapping constrictor muscles, the superior middle and inferior constrictor muscles that are fan-shaped and overlapping, than the long, thin longitudinal muscles that, that run the length of the pharynx that are responsible for shortening the distance that the bolus has to travel. Gotcha. So I just think they probably don't contribute as much when there's sarcopenic changes in those long, thin muscles. They're not the ones that are picked up by this acoustic pharyngometry measure. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So I think, so kind of what's jumping out at me with the, the takeaway here is these are healthy normals. Yeah. And we're still seeing a lot of molecular residue. I would probably not say a lot. Okay. I would say there are changes. <laughs> right. So so let me say that this is the, the NRS, which is normalized residue ratio scale, is pixel-based measures. So we outline how many pixels of barium we see, okay. and then we outline the space of the spatial housing. So if you imagine outlining the pixels of residue in the molecular, then you, and you extract that, then you also measure the number of pixels in the molecular space, and then you do some, there's some math behind the scenes, and I'll tell you how to do this. You also measure the length of the cervical spine from C2 to C4. So that the math that happens behind the scenes is essentially telling us how much residue is there given the available space and given how big someone is. Okay. Those measures sound daunting, I'm sure. You're thinking, <laughs> I'm never going to be able to do that. I'm going to say mild, moderate, severe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's true, and I recognize that it's difficult, but you can take them. Um, and if you go to Dr. Katrina Steele's website, we have the instructions there on how to take them, and we have the spreadsheets that do the math for you. Awesome. So all you have to do is follow the directions and then plug them into this Excel macro, and it'll spit out the values for awesome. you. Awesome. Okay, so it's it's less daunting when I tell you that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. you still have to download uh, ImageJ, which is the freeware that, that allows you to do these calculations, and then you need to go read those instructions, and then you take those measures. But you could, if you had the opportunity, you could say, all right, I... I want to know if my four weeks of strengthening is improving residue and measure your pre and your post chloro. Have a there little you go. N of one. Yeah. And prove that what you're doing works. Yeah. I love it. And it's more sensitive than, because all these people would probably, because they're healthy, they probably fall into a score of a zero or a one on a rating scale. And so we might do a bunch of work and improve them, but not be able to capture it using those gotcha. perceptual measures. Yeah. So, so yeah, there is... Seniors have residue, and I've, this is not the first study to show that. And yep. the, the question is how you're going to say what's residue and what isn't. In this analysis, we didn't categorize someone as with or without. We used this fine-tuned continuous measure. And the relationship is, as the volume of the pharynx is bigger, the more residue you see, the more pixels of barium cool. are left behind. Awesome. So yeah, obviously a next step is looking at this. <clears throat> in patient populations, especially in disease populations where we expect muscular changes, I think it'd be really interesting. You know, you, you mentioned the longitudinal study, but I also could see with some of these populations which suffer such devastating losses over short periods of time, I'm thinking ALS or mm -hmm. some of the muscular dystrophies, that we could probably capture changes in, within a participant over time. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of work to do. I'm kind of excited to be able to apply principles of exercise that we know about sarcopenia reversal to the pharynx. That's what I hope to do next. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. Awesome. What do you think basically the clinical applicability of this is? 
Right. So I think that this is an early study that shows us that we need to pay attention to the size of the pharynx. I can think back to a patient I saw when I was a junior clinician and being struck by the cavernous <laughs> pharynx, and, and you don't see constriction, and, and you don't see basive tongue to posterior wall stripping waves, and you think, well, how could he possibly do that? It's, yeah. it, there's, it's this giant gaping space. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that this is a shocking paper to anyone. I, it lays the groundwork for us to, to look at ways to reverse or prevent this. I think the clinical applications are also demonstrating the use of um, some of these measures, like I just mentioned about NRS. I mean, I'd love for people to, to measure yeah. residue. It, it is time-consuming, and I don't live in the world that a lot of your subscribers are living in. I know that some of them are out there without instrumentation to begin with, yeah. so asking yeah. to measure from a fluoro yeah. is a huge leap. Yeah. So I guess for those people, this, this paper contributes a proof of concept that normal aging will have consequences, and it remains to be seen whether we can intervene. And so it also establishes that a normative sort of viewpoint so that when we when we talk about someone, an elderly person, having an event or suffering a diagnosis or undergoing treatment for head and neck cancer, that they may already be fighting against some some of these natural changes and, and that there's that, that part's kind of depressing, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because they were functional, right? Yeah. Like, these people are all functional. So it would be really neat to follow them over time, like yeah. you suggested. Yeah. What I think is like so fascinating, and you know, I try to drive home at some of the clinicians that I work with is residue isn't always horrible. No, you know, I mean no. these are healthy normals sure. in your calculating sure. residue, and sure. sometimes even you know switching the script a little bit when I'm doing fees and we see residue. Right. The SLP will say, "Oh my gosh, that's a lot of residue." Mm-hmm. And yes, but right. And I think from my understanding, I mean, I don't do a lot of fees, but my understanding is it tends to look worse yeah. on fees. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's really important for people to know that, you know, that yeah. what you see is not, maybe it's not a threshold that's yeah. at some risk. We did a study, Katrina and I, when I was in my PhD, that looked at could we have a threshold for residue that would mean they were at risk for aspirating on the subsequent swallow. Oh, okay. Right? So, yeah. so what you want to, when you're, the reason we care about residue yeah, yeah. is we're worried that that residue will eventually be aspirated. Right. The fact that it's sitting there in the pharynx, okay, not great, but it's really what's going to happen to it, right? Right. And so, and that's where fees is so great because you can just sit and watch. Right. 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 Um, and then we're there for yeah a half an hour and we're still not seeing anything. And, right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, we use this NRS, this continuous measure in people who used multiple swallows to clear a bolus, because you need to see what happens next, and that we don't always have that in floral, right? So we looked at this data set of patients, and when we had multiple swallows, we took the residue from the first swallow and then scored the PAS on the clearing swallow. Okay. Okay? And then we did if they did four clearing swallows, we did that again. So then we looked at the second swallow's residue to see if it predicted penetration aspiration event in the next swallow. And by doing that, you can start to hone in on what what's too much residue. And now there is uh, more literature that has come out since that time, both from Dr. Steele's lab and one of doctoral students, Ashwini Nevsamaya McDonald, who is now at Adelphi, has continued this work in, in other populations. So I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but I would, you know, those are really interesting papers to go to that we can use this information. So 
if I were to do this study again now, I would want to, to go to the next level, maybe look in nursing home populations for frails, much more frail seniors, yeah. look into people who depend on meals on wheels, look into people who are dependent for care, who are still healthy, so we can look at, we need that tipping point, right? right. So this does not touch on the where does pharyngeal volume become a problem because of the health of these seniors. So it, it certainly just scratches the surface. Yeah. Awesome. And if you or your facility are looking to purchase a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fee studies, EndoHD is a case-portable system as well as a carded system depending on your needs. Additionally, EndoHD representatives can help clinicians set up their fees program. So contact our wonderful sponsor today at www.ndohd.com forward slash contact for more information. Uh, as we're discussing measuring residue here, I know that they have an awesome new residue measuring tool that is in the works. So please feel free to contact them to hear more about it. I had the opportunity to check it out one of the recent shows, and it's just such a cool and unique tool. So um, please go check out ndohd.com forward slash contact for more information. My mind just totally switched gears. Do you have any any final thoughts on this paper? No. Okay. okay. All right. Yeah. I don't know why, like, as you're talking, I guess my brain was just totally racing about, was it 2013? Did you write a paper about the measuring the hyolaryngeal elevation? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. I think yep. so. Maybe 14. <laughs> yeah. What are, what the are one that years? scales, scales height excursion. Yes. Yeah. In, yeah. Uh, against the spine. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I think what's so fascinating about that, and I know we totally just jumped gears, everybody. So sorry about that, but that's welcome to my brain. So, <laughs> um, but, and, and actually I was just texting with my friend Dan and he wanted me to mention this to, wanted me to ask you this too. But as we're learning more and more about these healthy normals, yep. you know, now we're learning this about residue and now we're learning, you know, we have such a wide range of hyaluronic yep. excursion and yep. that's what you found on that paper. Uh, oh, do you mean the paper that looked at like what everybody else had published on healthy normals and then we saw these crazy ranges? Yeah. 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 Was it, okay. it was like four to 24 or something yeah. wild. Yeah. yeah. That was super fun. That was actually, um, I just was trying to do a lit literature review for my dissertation so I had this table going and I brought it to Katrina I said this is this is crazy and she's like yeah we need to write this up so that that was limited to literature that reported on healthy people's hyoid excursion so okay. there's 13 studies for hyoid and four for larynx and we separated by anterior and superior movement and the range is crazy yeah now part of that review looks at some of the things that we think might contribute to that so there are differences between the studies, naturally. What barium density they used, what volume they're talking about, how old the subjects were, what they defined as the starting point of Hyatt excursion, right? So there's all these variables. At first, when you brought this up, I thought you meant the paper that I wrote that followed that, where we, when we applied some principles to control for the variation, we were able to really hone in on it. And one of the things that we controlled for was how big someone is. Okay. Just like that idea of what's the risk of this residue for that person, We've shown that when we measure height excursion in millimeters, as it's traditionally been reported, tall people and short people have different height excursions, yeah. right? I mean, it's what not... A concept, yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> and so that's going to make your sample look varied, yeah. right? You, you put a mean and a standard deviation 
on a sample of people who are different sizes, you're going to get a big range of variation. And so we, we actually showed that men and women have statistically different, statistically significantly different height excursion when you look at millimeters. Then we, what we did, what we scaled the movement, so we, we measured it in a different way. We measured it using their own anatomy. So instead of measuring in millimeters, we measured in the distance between C2 and C4. So that is known to vary with height, and so we're controlling for how tall someone is. So when we did that, sex differences disappeared. Men and women don't swallow differently, at least with respect to that, if you control for how tall they are. And so I did that way back when on my Young Healthy data set, and actually my doctoral student just presented today here at ASHA validating this in seniors. So that's really cool, too, because the spine changes in aging, right? So we needed to know if C2C4 was still predictive, and it looks like it is. But now I don't remember. What was Dan's question? Um, So just just talking about... We have this wide range, and yep. just we think we have these clinicians that are just trying to use right. three fingers and oh, help hate, you know. <laughs> yes. I mean, this is now. Go ahead and rant on that. <laughs> well, I, I think you should have another Swallow Your Pride with my doctoral student, Danielle Brates. Yeah. She did a really cool study on can we palpate differences in hyaluronic excursion. Awesome. And so I don't want to steal her thunder there, but yeah, first author Brates in the Dysphagia Journal. Okay. Uh, and, and so, okay, so the disconnect is there's a huge range of normal. Is this for you, Dan? Yes. Yeah. a huge range of normal. And so what does it mean when you look at your patient with respect to making decisions, both from a bedside eval or, and or floral? I mean, this, we're talking about the gold standard in air quotes, doesn't let us divide people in a meaningful way. And I, at, at first, this used to really bother me, make me really depressed. But now I see the beauty in swallowing, that it's this system that can work in, in many different ways to achieve functional and safe swallowing. And so one person might use a whole bunch of hyoid excursion and no pharyngeal constriction, but somebody else might have a different pattern for their functional swallow. And patients appear to be able to adapt in some ways and when that or when they can't that's when the dysphagia is manifested now i'm saying all this without a study that has i mean there's there are studies that contribute to these ideas that the swallow is dynamic and a lot of it comes from ensa humbert's lab where they use perturbation studies they they disrupt the swallow to see how it accommodates and it's fascinating how adaptive it is so i think that that's part of why we see these wide ranges and and instead of being bummed out about them we can just think like, what a cool system, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, that that it'll do what it needs to do. The same way, I say this to my students a lot. There was a, a trend. I don't think it's a trend anymore. I never did it. Dining in the dark. You would go oh, to yeah, a yeah. restaurant, yeah. eat in the dark, yeah, 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 right. And so, you don't know what you're going to eat, yeah, right. And <laughs> and you use your sensory information, yeah, to send information into the central pattern generator to get the right motor output for the right bolus. I mean, it, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And, and so if you think about it that way, you know, there's too many other things to explain why these ranges are big to be able to really feel like we can find these. I don't, my point is I don't think we're going to find a meaningful cutoff that works for everybody yeah. because there are other factors. Yeah. That being said, it's really important to follow a protocol. Yeah. So when you're doing a study, do everything the same so that the variation is just the variation. Yeah. So you, you, 
you know that you used this barium at this volume for this patient. And so when you do your post-treatment or your, your, you know, maybe it's a degenerative disease population, whatever, if you're doing repeated studies, mm-hmm. you need a protocol. Yeah, yeah. And you need a protocol because if you want to look at the outcomes, I'm not even saying as a researcher, as a clinician, you need to calibrate yourself to see things that are the same to look at the outcomes, right? Yeah. So I don't know if that contributes to Dan's question, but I think I think the variation is functional. We need to control for the external sources, and then we're still going to see variability. Yeah, I think the, the variability is huge. I know I just saw a patient a few weeks ago, and like on fees, you know, we have the whiteout phase. The patient didn't have the whiteout phase. There was like no epiglottic mm. inversion wow. whatsoever, wow. but had really good airway protection. So I was going back and forth because the SLP was... Like, there's no epiglottic inversion. Like, is, should this patient be NPO? And I was like, oh, no. But there's also no aspiration. Like, right. there's no, right. his, everything else is compensating. Right. So right. here's, you know, we have this one major impairment that's missing. Right. This one major impairment. Right. But, but it's still working. And right. everything else is compensating. So. And this is really important. So a functional swallow means quality of life. Right. Mm-hmm. So if that person yeah. didn't have a normal swallow. Right. But no, no, not NPO. Right, no. Right. So I, you know, I, I, I mean, I like, look I'm, in the bigger context. Like yeah. We're having repeated pneumonia. Right, right, right. Obviously, right. you're going to look at the clinical. Right. And context. there was nothing. It was just really alarming. So mm-hmm. that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. It, it's really a cool system. Yeah. 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 Because I, you know, I felt on one end, I felt weird writing these impairments, but then saying, you know, yeah, recommendations. Sure. Patients, you know, find a regular thing, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, 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 I mean, and I could just think of if if the report got in, like, the wrong hands and someone were to read this list of impairments, right? then they may all of a sudden give this patient a death sentence of NPO. Or, you, you know, really can see the importance of education for the patient yeah. in that scenario, yeah. right? Like, yeah. this is not yeah. normal by right. any stretch. Right. But right. I think, and I don't work in, in head and neck populations that often, but I think that this happens, it's my yeah, impression yeah, that yeah, this happens. Yeah. You know, people, they're missing like whole hunks of, right. <laughs> yeah. But that does not mean we need to condemn, right. condemn them to a restrictive right. diet. Yeah. Yeah. The variability pieces is challenging. I guess what's really, what's really hard is, is from the research side, variability means, just inherently means you need a bigger sample, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So if we know that we control for all the external sources and it's still noisy, we still have variability, that means we need more people to prove what we do works. Yeah. And so this is a big challenge because this kind of research is expensive and, and we have these heterogeneous samples and, and we have you know lots of limitations on how to do this work properly. And I think that that's why our treatment research is not as strong as it could be. I think clinicians are out there using a lot of treatments that they know works from their own clinical wisdom mm-hmm. and experience. Yep. I think there's also some being used that doesn't work. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, and I'm not going to get into those things, yep. but I, it's just not that easy to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so we have a long way to go. Yep. Yeah. I love that you say that because I think so many times it's easy for us to blame each other. Obviously, this can be a whole whole nother episode. <laughs> you know, I, I hear people say all the time, well, why couldn't the researchers do this? Right. You know, right. and, because it's not that easy. Right. You know, you have this dream study, you know, right. built and, up in your head. In the end, we have to be accountable for every dollar spent working towards answering a question. Yeah. And, and so building a study on the literature that's not good to begin with makes for a really challenging case to get enough money. So, 
this kind of work, bringing this full circle back to the, the pharyngeal volume thing, you know, like I could never say I'm going to do a treatment study on changing pharyngeal sarcopenia if I didn't first prove gotcha. that it yeah. exists. Yeah. That was the retrospective study. Yeah. That it affects the biomechanics of swallowing, that it affects functional outcomes for healthy people. You know, so it, it's just... It's so slow and yeah. frustrating, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but it, you know, I don't know. Yeah, no, I think our field for... is at an exciting at an exciting point. I yeah. think there's a lot that's going to help us help our patients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, thank you so much for sharing that. I think just as a clinician, we just wonder, like, why where's the study on the? Yeah, where's the study yeah. on the soccer? You're just yeah. sitting home eating bonbons. Why yeah, are you yeah. not writing this paper yeah. up? Like, <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's what we do. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, oh, that's awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Sonia. This was great. I, we only got interrupted a few times. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, and it's day one of ASHA, so I'm still energetic and good. <laughs> good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you so much, Sonia. This is no great. Problem. No problem. It's been a pleasure. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.